So we're considering this, this, this broad story of the scriptures, right? Beginning in creation, leading to a fall, a promise of redemption. In the rest of the Bible, God is bringing us to the new creation. He is, he is restoring that which was marred and defiled and broken in Adam's fall. And we're still in the sort of high-level observation portion of this sermon series. So I want to ask you again, boys and girls, we talked about these things last week, but, but just to keep you guys nice and sharp, let me ask you this question again. Why, we're jumping into the catechism a bit, why did God create all things? Anybody remember? For His glory. Yes, for His glory. And, and how many gods are there? One God, yes. And how many persons are there in the one God? There are three. And who are they? So let me ask you again, who, or I didn't ask you this yet, who created all things? God, yes. And who? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? Because God is three in one. And so we saw two weeks ago, I believe, creation for the glory of God, Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things to Him. Be glory forever. Amen. Last week, we saw creation by the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit working together with one will, one mind, with one uh, divine power, creating all things. And we turn today, as we continue to think about creation, to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. You know, there are a few passages usually, if you want to... um, to declare to someone the glories of Jesus, the, 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 the humanity and divinity of the Lord Jesus, there's, there's a few passages that are sort of go-tos for us, right? We love John 1, 1 through 18, glorious text there. We love Hebrews 1, maybe 1 through 3, 1 through 5, glorious text there. We love Philippians chapter 2, another wonderful text. And this is, I think, in that list of maybe the top four or five texts that speak of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's read today. I'm going to begin in verse 9 of Colossians 1, but our focus is going to be on 15 through 20. And so this is God's word for his church today. So take heed how you hear it. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now Paul's going to begin to speak of that beloved son in whom we have redemption. He, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to an incredible text today that we will just skim the surface of. But we pray, God, that you might bring us to Christ today. That you might bring Christ to us today. That we might worship at his feet, Father, Son, and Spirit. That we might worship at your feet. That we would glory in our Redeemer today. And so help us to see Christ in all of scriptures. Help us to glory in Jesus from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. May our faith be built up today, Lord. May our assurance be, be certain and sure and strong today, uh, Lord. Help us where we're weak. Help us where we're struggling. Help us where sin has infested our lives. And we've yet to, by the Spirit of God, weed it out. We need your grace today, Lord. Be with us now, we pray. Give us all ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Bible begins with a great dilemma on the opening pages, right? God has, as we read the opening pages of Scripture in the creation account, He has created all things by His divine power in the space of six days. And as we've seen, He said that it was good, right? All was good. The, 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 the creation itself is in perfect harmony. There is peace in the world, if you will. And man is there, man that, that bears the divine image of God, stamped upon his soul, is there in the garden, innocent and pure, right? Without sin, something that it's really hard for us to fathom, right? What that would have been like before the fall. But we see that this man rebels against God. Adam and Eve and all of their family, all of the children that would come through them, find themselves in a desperate situation early on in the storyline of Scripture. Sin has entered into the world. The entire cosmos has been cursed and defiled. And death is now certain for Adam and Eve. And on top of all of that, they are exiled from the garden, from the special presence of God. And maybe if you think back, all the way back, whenever it was, to your first read through the Bible, the first time you opened up the book of Genesis, and it seems that things go so quickly from good to bleak, right? There is light, and then there is darkness. And what we've been seeing is that the rest of the Bible is God's progressive plan unfolding to restore that which was undone in the fall. And so the question that we might ask as we read this Genesis account is how will he do it? How is God going to fix all of this? And another question we might ask is by whom 
will he fix all that Adam has torn to shreds. Well, as we read Paul in Colossians chapter 1, we're confronted with the reality of the supremacy of the Son of God. Amen? If you got anything out of that text, you saw that Christ is supreme. He is supreme from creation to redemption to new creation. We read there that he's the firstborn of all of creation. Now, many men have stumbled over that text. Please don't hear that text and read that at some point long ago, before everything else, God made Jesus. That Jesus was at some point the firstborn of God. We see in the text that God calls Israel his firstborn meaning the preeminence of Israel, that they are his chosen ones. Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the heir. He's the significant special one. He was not born, but it's a state of position. He's the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one. We read in that text that by him all things were created. Whether things in heaven or things on the earth, whether things that are visible or invisible, spiritual or physical, whether thrones or dominions, everything was created by Christ. We, we learned that all things were created through him and all things were created for him. He's the end. He's the telos. He's the goal of all of this, his person and his work. We learn there that he's the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. Do you, do you see what's happening there? That Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. His incarnation and work on this world and death and resurrection on the cross is the first fruits of the new creation that he is ushering in as he sets out to restore all things. And we read that through him, all things will be reconciled. Things in heaven and things on earth, and he will make peace by the blood of his cross. Today, I want to bring our attention to the Christ-centered focus of creation. We've seen creation for the glory of God. We've seen creation by the triune God. And today we will see creation through the work of the Son of God, that there seems to be a Christological focus upon Christ and what he will do baked into even the creation account, finding its fulfillment in the new creation. And so my big idea is a bit wordy today, but here it is. This world is filled with trouble, toil, and strife. This world is filled with trouble, toil, and strife. You experience it every day. But, but, you can rest in hope. Because God has had a plan from the beginning to bring you, his church, and this world to its intended state of glory through the work of the Son of God. This world is filled with trouble, toil, and strife. You experience it every day, but you can rest in hope because God has had a plan from the beginning to bring you, his church, and this world to its intended state of glory. And how's he going to do that? He's going to do that through the work 
of the Son of God. And so what I want to do today is go back into the Genesis account. And I want to see how, if, if what Paul says is true there, if Christ is supreme, if he made all things, he redeems all things, he reconciles all things, that everything is for him, through him, to him, Paul seems to be making the point that Jesus is the ultimate point of everything. Right? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. And if that be true, then I want to go back to the Genesis account and try to discern, is there any inklings of this Messiah in the Garden of Eden? Is Jesus, if he is the destination, if he is the hope of mankind, is he anticipated in those early first chapters? And what I think we'll see is that the coming of the God-man is baked into the narrative for us. Now, we have the, we have the blessing of hindsight. Amen? We have the blessing of having all of the Bible. And so, like the the incipient uh, revelation of the Trinity, like the things we saw last week that were there a bit shadowy, if we just read them on their face without the totality of the Bible, we might say, well, I'm not so certain. But now as we look back and we see what Christ actually did in the fullness of God's revelation and we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we see that God was revealing these things to us even from the beginning. And so four ways today, four ways that Jesus is anticipated in the Garden of Eden. And the first, the first is that he is anticipated through the first man, Adam. Through the first man, Adam. We just read in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, I, I, I lost my spot, let me get there again. In verse 15, we read of Jesus that he is the image of, of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And we read in verse 13 that he is God's beloved son. He's the son of God. We know this, right? That's not shocking news to us. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the son of God. And we know from elsewhere in scripture that Jesus was sinless. Amen? Was sinless and is sinless to this day. So Jesus is a sinless, image-bearing Son of God. Well, last, yesterday, we did what most Christians don't ever think about doing, and that is a Bible study in a genealogy. And it was glorious. He was mining all sorts of truth from the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. And Matthew has an emphasis. He showed us that... Matthew's tracing Jesus through the Hebrews, but ultimately to creation. But Matthew's focus is, is to trace Jesus through the Davidic dynasty, all the way back to David and all the way back to Abraham, primarily. That's his emphasis. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and he wants his audience to see this man has the rights to the throne of David, to the crown rights of the Jewish people, the Davidic throne. Luke has a different intention. And Luke's gospel, written to a larger audience, a more broad audience, we might say a Gentile audience, Luke has a genealogy as well, but he traces Jesus' connection not just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Luke wants to show us that Jesus is a brother of all of humanity, right? that all men are connected to Christ through 
Adam. And notice what Luke says at the very end of his genealogy. This is Luke chapter 3 and verse, let's say, 37. We read of the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so we read of that, that, that Enos fathered, or excuse me, was the, I'm getting mixed up here. <laughs> Adam is the father of Seth, right? Seth is the father of Enos. Enos is the father of Canaan. But who is the father of Adam? The text says that Adam is the son of God. Adam is a son of God, we might say. Who was it that brought Adam to life? Who was it that grabbed the dust, if you will, with his divine hands and breathed life into Adam's form? It was God. And so Luke calls Adam here a son of God. And we know in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. And only Adam and Eve were in the image of God before the fall, without sin, before that image was corrupted. Adam was sinless for a time in his state of innocence. So we might say as well of Adam that he is a sinless image-bearing son of God. Now, before you pick up your stones to take me out here, um, please know that I'm not saying that Adam is divine in any sort of way, in, in any way related to Christ in that sense. All I'm saying is that the Bible calls him a son of God. The Bible says he's an image bearer. The Bible says that he was sinless. And the one that comes, who we call the second Adam, is also the image of God, the son of God, and he is also sinless. But let's turn to Romans chapter 5 because the Bible makes a very clear connection between Adam and our Lord. You know this text, I'm sure. Romans chapter 5, the whole section there is worth our time, but uh, there's a clock there and it runs out after a while. Uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so God tells us through Paul that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Who is the one that was to come? Jesus, yes. So the question we have to ask is, what is a type, right? I know that some of you are thinking back to previous lessons we've had and you're waiting for the hard drives of your brain to spin up so that you can access that memory saying, what, what is a type? This is a tricky subject. But boys and girls, you guys know what a type is. I bet you do. I bet you do. Think with me, boys and girls, about the coolest place that mom and dad could ever take you. I don't know what that is for you. But maybe you have dreams of fun places that mom and dad will one day take you for the greatest adventure ever. Maybe you're a thrill seeker and you like to go on roller coasters. I heard that some of the Ehrlich ladies last week are thrill seekers because they were so insane to skydive. So God bless you guys. Um, but maybe you're a thrill seeker and you want to go to the tallest roller coaster you could find because you love to have fun. Um, my, 
my wife and I used to live by a place called Knott's Berry Farm. I'm sure you've heard of it. And there's a thing called Supreme Scream. And I hate this ride. <laughs> and you sit in a little chair and you go up as high as you can and you look at the whole world and it drops you and you hope that this is not your last day on the earth as you plummet down to the ground. And maybe that's your desire to go on this incredible tower and to go up there and see your life flash before your eyes. And so mom and dad take you to this place and you're going to go on the roller coaster and you finally get there and dad says, there it is. And you look and he's pointing at the shadow on the ground. And maybe you're thinking, dad lost a couple marbles on the drive out to the amusement park. And you look at him and you say, dad, the ride's right there. I haven't come for the shadow. We're here for the real thing. There's the ride. And you say, no, look at the shadow. You can even see the ride going up and down. You might understand something of the ride from the shadow. You can see its portrait. You can see that it's kind of there. But you're there for the ride, right? You're there to actually get on the thing, go up, and hopefully come down and get off and go home. Or maybe mom and dad, you go out for a nice date, and you go to get some sushi, because everyone loves sushi, right? <laughs> and if you're at the right place, they need to know how to do the menu. There's pictures on the menu, because a firecracker here and a firecracker across town is not the same thing, right? And you have the menu, and you're looking at the pictures, and you're picking out your food, and your mouth's beginning to water. For some of you, it's watering for other reasons, but your mouth's beginning to water, and you're, you're picking out your order, and you tell the waitress what you want, and she brings you the food. And what do you do with the menu? You get rid of it because it's no longer necessary. That one-dimensional picture showed you something of the, the great meal you're about to partake of, but you want the real thing, right? You want the substance. You want the plate that you can grab your fork or grab your, your chopsticks and dig in to the food. A type is a shadow. A type is something that symbolizes something greater, but it's not the real deal. It's not the real thing. And so a type in the Bible is a person, Adam, a place, the Garden of Eden, an event, the Passover, an institution, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, that foreshadows and anticipates something greater in the future. The type is the shadow, the fulfillment, or the antitype, is the substance. Now let me ask you a question. When does a type become a type? Did Adam become a type of Christ when Paul wrote the book of Romans? A type is a type because God makes it to be a type. A type is a type by divine design. God intends something to prefigure something else from its creation. And so God created Adam in the garden to be a type of Jesus Christ, to foreshadow, look forward, and anticipate a greater one to come. And so how is Adam a type of Christ? Well, Adam is, as, as the old men would say, a public person. That means that Adam is a covenant head. That means the things that Adam does, or the things that Adam did, will impact others, Right? Are you impacted by what Adam did in the garden? You are, right? Because you were born with Adam as your covenant head. Again, boys and girls, has anyone ever played on a, a sport before? Maybe like soccer, on a team, or maybe in your backyard, you've just played a game together. Now, when you're on a team sport and one person does, makes a penalty, does that person only get penalized or the whole team? Usually it's the whole team, right? Right? The whole team gets penalized for the one person's 
foul because all are on the same team. And so when Adam sinned, all that were connected to him, all that were on team Adam, if you will, all suffer his penalties as well. So what Adam did impacts everyone connected to him. And the bad news in the Bible is that everyone is connected to him, right? We're all born connected to Adam. We're all facing the repercussions of his actions long ago. And so if you're here today and you have yet to place your faith in what we call the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, then you're still united to the first Adam. You're still on team Adam, if you will. The things that he did still represent you. That is, you share his guilt today if you've yet to trust in the second Adam. You share in his rightly due condemnation. That is, judgment awaits those that are in Adam if they don't turn. And the Bible says very plainly, plainly that in Adam, all die. Right? In Adam, all will die. Death, if you're on team Adam, death still stings for you today because it's the entrance into something that you don't want to experience. And if you're still in Adam, then there is no covering for your sin. There's nothing that protects you from God's wrath. But Jesus is also a public person. He also represents others. And the things that he did will impact everyone that's connected to him as well. Amen? So that which Jesus did for good brings good and blessing upon all those that would trust in him or one day be connected to or represented by him. And so the word for us today, as we think about Adam in Christ, the word for us today is to flee from the failure of the first Adam. Place your faith with whole-souled trust in the second Adam, the greater Adam that did what you and I and Adam could never do, perfectly obeyed the law and died in the place of sinners. And so in the opening account of the Bible, God, it seems, is creating a longing. He's creating a question in our minds. If one person, Adam, could mess this whole thing up and his actions alone could destroy everything, then maybe there's someone that could come in the future that could also represent humanity that could fix all of this that's been broken in Adam's fall. So this, the, 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 the second Adam is intentionally anticipated in the first. Adam is a type of Christ from the beginning of Genesis. Another way that Jesus is anticipated in the garden is through the marriage that takes place. There's a marriage, right, in the garden. Remember what we said. A type becomes a type because God says that it is a type. Not when we know that it is, not when Paul writes about it, not when the Bible reveals it to us, but a type is a type at its origin because God intends that to be. Maybe I could say it like this. God does not look back and say, wait a minute, there's some real connections here between Jesus and Adam. I'm going to tell Paul to write about this because this would be helpful for people to understand Jesus. No, he intends that right from the beginning. This is in God's purpose from the time that he creates. So let's turn now to Ephesians chapter 5. And for 
a study on creation, we're sure reading a lot of Paul. But we know that later scripture gives us light to that which comes before. So Ephesians 5, this is Paul's words about marriage, right? You know these words, especially if you're, if you're, marriage, if you're married. I'm, I'm, I'm certain at some point you've trembled at these weighty words that the apostle gives. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, or the whole section, starting from verse 22 of Ephesians 5. He says there, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of <coughs> the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. In verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, did you notice what Paul did there in verse 31? Paul directly, yesterday we learned about quotations, allusions, and parallels. Paul quotes here directly Genesis 2 and 24. That is pulled right out of the Genesis narrative. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave, hold fast, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Paul says that this mystery is profound, but I'm saying to you that it refers to Christ and to the church. Dr. Barcelo says then that marriage from the beginning was a living picture of Christ and his church. This, again, is not something that comes along as God looks at marriage and says, hey, this might be a helpful analogy or illustration of the gospel. But he's intending this from the beginning as Adam and Eve are united together. Think with me about the story. God creates man in his own image and God says that it's not good that man is alone. Right? It's the only thing he says in all of that account. It's not good. Adam has no helper like the rest of the creatures. Adam... Is it's not good because Adam needs a helper to take dominion and fill the earth with image-bearing Yahweh worshipers, right? That's his job before the fall. That's Adam's vocation. He is to be fruitful and multiply. You remember that the Garden of Eden is a small place on the earth. God made a garden. He creates Adam outside of the garden, and he takes Adam and he places him in that garden. And Adam's commission is to take dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and expand the borders of that sacred space across the earth, to fill the earth with sinless, image-bearing sons of God, if you will. He needs a wife to do this, right? 
He needs a wife to be fruitful and multiply. He needs a helper in his vocation, someone to come alongside of him. And so God gives him Eve from his own body. We'll talk more about this when we get there. And you know the story. Adam exults when he sees her. He sort of waxes eloquently as he sees this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's been naming animals all day and out comes his bride and he glories in what God has done to give him this helpmate. And as wonderful as that all is, as wonderful as marriage is, Paul is telling us, as he comments on Genesis 2, that marriage has an even greater purpose. That it pictures something even better than a man and a woman spending a life together. Paul says that it is a mystery that was yet to be revealed in the book of Genesis that the institution of marriage is meant to picture the union between Christ and His church. I mean, we think about what Paul has said here. We look at, he, he talks about the authority of the husband. That he is to lead sacrificially. And we need to hear those words, brothers. Because we like the authority part. We like the submission part, right? I'm the boss, and you submit to me, but... We have to lead as Christ has loved the church. And how did he love the church? Ultimately, he died for his bride. Right? He died. He shed his own blood, willingly gave of himself. So that's what leadership, godly leadership in the home looks like. It's a sacrificial. It's a giving of oneself, whole-souled sacrifice for the family. The husband we see here ministering the, the word of God to his wife Washing her with the word is a picture of Christ ministering the word to his church, to his bride, washing her with the word. And so we see that the husband is meant to have a, a sanctifying influence upon his, uh, his bride. He's to wash her with the word. He's to shepherd her souls. And I'll, I've said it before, I'll, I'll say it again, this is my opinion, that the husband ought to be the the, the most important shepherding and sanctifying influence upon his wife, if he is being faithful in that calling, a high calling, brothers, a high calling indeed that we ought to tremble at. And we see the wife then, and he speaks of the wife submitting to her husband as Christ submits to the church. And how do we submit to Christ, beloved? Do we do so begrudgingly? Do we do so angrily kicking our feet and stomping our feet and saying, I have, to, I have to listen to my Lord. I have to obey the word of God. We do so with glad hearts because God has been good to us. And so the wife is called to submit joyfully to her husband. She's been called to come alongside him as a helpmate. And this is intended to be a picture of the church submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam, we've seen as the husband, was a type of the one who was to come, the second Adam. Then it logically follows that Eve, as the wife, was a type of the church who is then the second Eve. Now, I know the Bible doesn't use the language of the second Eve, um, but it logically seems to flow there. Listen to Peter O'Brien. He says, it was God's intention from the beginning when he instituted marriage to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people. Adam needed a helper. 
to fulfill the duties that God had called him to. He could not do those things without her. He was incapable of faithfully fulfilling his mandate without his bride. And Jesus, the second Adam, has ordained that he would have a helper too in his labors, his church. And she, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, would be his helpmate to carry out his labors on this earth. And so marriage in the garden anticipates this covenant union between Jesus and the church. It's built in there from the beginning. Did, the, did, the, did, the, did Moses understand all of that? Unlikely. But God was intending it for us to see down the road. Thirdly then, another way that Jesus is anticipated in the garden is through animal skins. Through animal skins. And I'm going to turn back to Genesis now and look at the fall in chapter 3. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Excuse me, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There's a lot going on here that we can't cover all of this today, but I want to point out these feudal coverings that Adam and Eve try to make for their sin. Um, I've heard, I don't have a fig tree in my yard, but I've heard that fig leaves are not very soft. We're not talking about satin or silk here, something that's rough and scratchy against the skin. Um, we all know that a, a tree, you see a tree in, in, its, in the springtime and it's green and it's lush, and you can pluck a leaf off of that tree and it will be green and vibrant and you can squeeze it and crunch it and it'll be sort of juicy. But we know that if you leave that leaf on the ground for a day, you're going to come back and it's going to be drying up and shriveling up. It's going to be brutal and or, excuse me, brittle. And so we see Adam and Eve taking this foolishly temporary, uncomfortable covering for their shame. It might have seemed good in, a, in the moment, but they would go to sleep that night, wake up, and it would already be turning brown, drying up, a futile attempt at best to cover their shame in their sin. Not only do they use the, the, the loincloths they make, but they also hide from God in the very trees that God had given them. Now, earlier in the Genesis account, 
it says that the trees were good for the eye and good for food. That these were gifts of God that were a blessing from him to his people. And the Bible, it seems, often likes to, to use irony. And I think there's some irony here in that the very blessing of God given to Adam and Eve are the things that they're hiding under from the Lord. They ran into the trees, the gifts of God, to hide from his very presence. Listen to something that Mitch Chase says. This really just struck me as I read it. An immediate effect of sin in Adam's heart was that God's presence was now unwelcomed. As soon as sin enters into into Adam's heart, all of a sudden, the presence of God is a negative thing. It's something that he wants to run away from, separate himself from. He knows that he's wrong. He knows that he's naked. He's suffering and feeling shame. And God asks him that question, have you eaten from the tree? Now let's not be naive to think that that God is seeking information here. This question is intended to pierce Adam's heart. To cause him to, to ponder and acknowledge his own rebellion against his creator. It's like the mother that asked the child, have you eaten from the cookie jar when they're covered in chocolate chips and there's a mess all ground into the carpet? And what is the first response? No, not me. God is, 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 is piercing through Adam's soul with this question. Have you done that which I forbid you from doing? Beloved, is this not what sin always does? It exiles God from our hearts. In our guilt, in our shame, we, we want to remove God from the picture. We want to turn our faces away from the light of His presence. Even if for a moment, because we know that darkness cannot dwell in the light. Light always expels the darkness. And so you will either walk in the light, bringing your actions into the light, or you will flee to the darkness to cover your sin with foolish loincloths, with more sin, more lies, with trivial things that will never actually cover your shame. Boys and girls... Did you notice something here in the text, boys and girls, that we're just like them? Have you ever got in trouble at the house and you did something wrong and mom or dad says, what did you do? And you go, it was her. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. When you know that you did it, you know that you're guilty, but you don't want to get in trouble and so you blame someone else. You point the finger. Adam seems to blame God ultimately. It's the woman that you gave me. Eve points the finger at the serpent. Everyone is looking outside of themselves for the problem. It's not me. It's not my fault. It was the serpent. It was the woman. It looked good to the eye. If you're here today, anyone here, if you're here today in secret sin, you have to know that your sin will find you out. It will be exposed. It will be brought to the light. The reality is you might be the greatest con man to ever walk the earth. And you might for 40 years fool the person that you lay down with in a bed every single night. But listen to what the Word of God says. If I can get there.
have the wrong on oh, no, four. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter four in verse thirteen. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And we can be like Adam and Eve and make loincloths to cover our sins. We can think that the things that we do in the closet are hidden from others, and they very well may be hidden from everyone else in the world. But very clearly, God sees and God knows. And there will be a day that you stand before God naked and give account, and there will be no covering if you don't have Christ. There will be no refuge from the wrath of God to spare you from His awful judgment. But oftentimes, I believe that God is kind to us and He exposes our sin earlier than on the day of judgment. Right? It is a good thing that God does when He shines the light on our depravity. Amen? When He exposes our lies and exposes our hypocrisy, we know that this is something that is deeply painful in the moment, but it's for the good of our souls. Maybe you're here today as a Christian and you're struggling with some besetting sin. Something that has haunted you for a time that you always seem to fall back to. Or maybe it's just something new that seemingly came out of nowhere. Something that you're struggling with. I encourage you, even this day, beloved, to bring your sin into the light. Let it be known. Let it be seen. Acknowledge it before God. Acknowledge it before men. Confess to your spouse. Confess to your parents. Confess to your elders. There's a reason that, that God says, confess your sins to God, but also confess your sins to one another. Because we're good at bringing our sin to God and continuing to make provisions for the flesh. We need our sin to be brought into the light if we really want to see it put to death. So if you're struggling here today, beloved, don't blame shift like Adam. Don't point to God. Don't point to the woman. Don't point to the serpent. But run to the light because the light is where God is. The light is where grace is. And the light is where the true and only covering for your sin is. And look at this gracious God in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. There's so much that we see here. I understand this is very... Um, simple if we only have the first few pages of the Bible. But as we see the sacrificial system and its centrality to, to people being able to dwell in the presence of God, we look back on this text and we see that it's profound what God is doing. Notice we see that when Adam and Eve sin, innocent blood is shed. The first sin, something dies. And that death, it seems, is a substitute for Adam and Eve. It's not the blood of Adam and Eve that is shed here. Their sin causes the death of another. Another thing we see is that it's actually God that's handling the sacrifice. God does the sacrifice. God kills the animal. And you can, you can correct me on this tonight, but there's two, for me, two sacrifices that are administered by God in the Bible where God is the one that offers the sacrifice. Throughout all of the priesthood, it is the priest bringing the offering. But here in the Garden of Eden and at the cross of our Lord, God offers up Himself as the sacrifice 
in the gospel. God is the one bringing the sacrifice. God is the one that slays the sacrifice here. And we also see that God in His grace covers their shame. He makes provision for their nakedness. He makes provision for their shame. And at least for a time, He takes away the shame of their sin. I think we would all hopefully agree that we've all fallen short of glory. Amen? We've all gone our own way. We've all sinned. We've all done that which is shameful. As our brother said yesterday, we've all been scandalized by others and we've all scandalized people in our lives. Loincloths won't do. Feeble coverings for our sin won't do. But God in His grace has made a provision. He's given us His Son to be that perfect, secure, forever covering for our sin and our guilt. But the reality, beloved, is that we have to take off the loincloth. We have to take off the lies, the the covering, the the foolish attempts to make ourselves right with God. We must acknowledge our sin before God and to God and be clothed with Jesus Christ. He is the only place of refuge. He is the only way that we can have forgiveness with God. He is the only right that can fix this wrong. So turn away from your sin today and turn to Christ and God will turn away His wrath from you and cover you with His Son, Jesus. And so I think we see that even in this opening page here, as God has brought a curse upon fallen humanity, we're left with some hope that God is a God that covers the sin and shame of His people. Sin has incurred judgment, but God's grace has come to cover their shame. Jesus is anticipated in the animal skins. And finally, Jesus is anticipated in the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. I've saved this one for the end. This might be at least one of the more obvious that we turn to. We call this the first mention of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 And so as we think about the narrative, rebellion has entered into God's garden sanctuary. Adam and Eve have broken God's covenant. They've allowed the serpent to enter into God's sacred space, to defile God's garden temple, to twist God's holy word. Man, it could be said, has placed himself above God as the sovereign. Is that not what we do when we sin? Adam has essentially said, I do not need to heed the good command of my Creator. I can do what I want. This looks good. God is keeping something from me. And God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, the man, and even the creation itself. Let's let's read that, starting from verse 14 of Genesis 3. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see this awful pronouncement of judgment upon humanity, upon God's good creation. Paradise is lost. Communion with God has been broken and severed. Relationships now, human relationships are are troubled, are filled with strife. Our work is filled with toil and sweat. Childbirth even comes with immense pain and struggle. And death is now certain for man. God promises that Adam will return to the dust from which he came. But praise be to God that he does not leave mankind here without hope. He promises in this text a serpent crusher. He promises a seed of Eve, a godly one that is to come. Not the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the woman that's going to do away with the works of the devil. Let's read verse 15 again. He says, I will put enmity, hatred, war, a battle between you, serpent, and between the woman, and between your offspring, your seed, your children, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see this cosmic battle that's going to be taking place. Now, now this might be cliched with all of the with all of the movies out there or what have you, but this is the reality of the world that we live in, right? It is the battle between good and evil. Uh, God, God shows us here that, that there are those that are of Eve, those that are of the woman, and there are those that are of the serpent. And I think as we think here of Eve as a type of the church, it's sort of there's a connection there with those that are of Eve are those that that God says are his, and those that are of the serpent are going to be waging war against the offspring of Eve. But then he speaks in the singular. There is one he that's going to bruise your head, serpent, and there is one he that you will bruise his heel. And as we look at the storyline of the Bible, we see the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the woman, right? Over and over and over, the godless are coming up against God's people. The people of God are suffering oppression from those that do not know the Lord. And if we, if we, think, this is, if we think this is far-fetched, all we have to do is turn to the next chapter of the Bible. The first two brothers that are born into this world, what happens? One of them murders the other, right? One of them murders the other. The seed of the serpent is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And if maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know that the text in Genesis tells us that Cain is the seed of the serpent, that he's actually of the devil, 
But praise God that we have more than Genesis 1 through 4, right? Because God, through the Apostle John, says this, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So God tells us through John that Cain is of the devil. Cain was of the devil when he murdered his brother. But the serpent crusher, the seed of the woman, the sinless son of God, is promised here in Genesis 3. And so we read the text and we rejoice, even in the midst of a curse, that this is not the end of the story. Right? There is hope to be found. Remember, we see right here in the first three chapters of Genesis, creation, fall, and now the hope and promise of redemption. That one day, Eve is going to have a son, and that son is going to strike a fatal wound upon the serpent. And John tells us in that same chapter, 1 John chapter 3, something very informative. He says this in verse 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so we see a promised seed of the woman that John tells us the actual reason why this seed came was to destroy that which the serpent has done. Hebrews chapter 2 and 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things. He too shares in flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so we learn in Genesis 3 that one is coming, that will reverse the curse. One is coming that through death, he will defeat death. He will overcome it, and he will remove its sting for all of those for whom he represents. And he will do this by crushing the head of the serpent that brought death into this world. So let me close here by saying this. We've seen that Jesus is anticipated in the garden. Through the first Adam, through marriage, through animal skins, and through the seed of the woman. You and I today, we still live in Adam's fallen world. We face it every day. We feel it every day. You, you deal with the curse that started all the way back because of Adam's one act of rebellion. Work is hard. Childbirth is hard. Child rearing is hard. Right? Relations to our fellow man are filled with strife and difficulty and sin. The world is filled with sin and evil, and war and tragedy. And in all of this, it's, it's tempting for us to be discouraged. It's tempting for us to have sort of a depressed mindset of just, Lord, just get us out of here, please. Take me home. But you today, Christian, right now in the midst of the strife, can rest in hope. Because you've been united to the serpent crusher. Because Jesus was victorious over sin, you and I, too, can have victory over sin as well. And though you and I live in Adam's cursed world, we do so with the promise of this glorious blessing, that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. And his victory over sin and death is a sign for us that we, too, have victory 
over sin and death and that we too will be brought to this new creation in and through and with Him. And so instead of living downtrodden, discouraged lives when we turn on the news as if Adam has won and the world is headed to hell, Look to the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Look at these signs baked into the Genesis narrative. And look to the promise that the victor has come. We read in the Bible that Jesus will inherit the nations. That's a certainty, beloved. We read in the Bible that Jesus will win every single soul that he desires to bring to himself. There is not one That God is calling to himself that he will not win for eternity. We read in the Bible that Jesus will build his church against the war of the gates of hell and they shall not prevail. We learn in the Bible that Jesus will be faithful to his covenant bride, the church. We, those that are married, desire to be perfectly faithful to our husbands and wives and we fall short. We don't measure up. But Christ is a perfect husband to those that he loves. And we read in the scripture that Jesus has and that Jesus finally fully will crush the head of the serpent and cast him into the lake of fire. So, beloved, let us then go forth with these promises, with this hope to be faithful to fulfill the great commission and the great commandment because the second Adam has come and he has won. Amen. Let's pray.